Hello and welcome to another UK Column interview and we're absolutely delighted to be able to welcome back Roger Meacock, our consultant veterinary surgeon. Now I know many of you were delighted to see Roger's first interview and that's the link of that is going to be um, in the article beneath and that was all to do with mRNA in animals. But today we're going to talk about animals in general, about animals in 2023 whether they be farm animals, your cat, your dog. Is it safe to microchip our animals? Is it safe to vaccinate our animals? So many questions we've got to put to Roger, but without further ado, Roger, welcome back to UK Column and thank you so much for agreeing to come back. You had a resounding welcome last time and viewers were so pleased to see you. Could you just give us a little introduction as to why you are the last chance vet, a special vet, and the vet that does no harm. Welcome back, Roger. Hi, Debbie. Thank you very much for, for inviting me back. I'm you know, pleased to, to be here. Um, I suppose if I tell you a little bit about my journey to how I'm doing, then that will give people a bit of a, an understanding. Um, I qualified in the early 1990s as a very conventional vet, had no interest in complementary alternative practices at all and um, went into farm animal practice which I absolutely loved and um, but I started messing around with magnets but not to do with animals I was putting them on heating systems and um, on water to stop calcium carbonate crystals settling out and then the company that was making them started producing some magnotherapy products and I really wasn't very sure if they were you know perfectly good or useful or or, or anything at all I hadn't really got a, an opinion about them um but they first brought out the human ones and obviously because at that time I'm just treating animals as a vet I I sort of ignored that um but then they brought out some some animal products and I knew that the magnets worked on on the car in engine efficiency and fuel efficiency and stop the the, the crystals in, settling out in the water pipe so i thought well you know i'm not just going to stop doing something without checking it out for myself so um i gave um terry who ran our lab in the practice uh, and she was a breeder of golden retrievers so i gave her one of the dog collars to put on and sort of said you know try this and see what happens and you know if in a couple of weeks time nothing happens we'll just forget about it and um she came up to the next day and said do you want do you want check or cash and uh, to cut a long story short it had made a, a miraculous uh, difference to her old boy overnight and um i then started using sort of the horse magnets and putting them on cows down a cow's and and got again got some very good positive correlation with the magnets being on and the cows being better and take the take the magnets off and the cows go back down again because very often after carving one of the common things that cows used to do would be they, you know they'd struggle to get up so that was sort of my journey into thinking well i've got this information now i can't necessarily i don't necessarily understand what the magnets are doing or how they're doing it but they're certainly not putting anything foreign into the body and they seem to be making a definite effect positive effect so you know let's let's use use it see what we can use it for and and try and understand it and then you can start to predict where where things can be used in different ways so that's pretty much what i started doing 
Um, and then very soon I was introduced to um, a microcurrent stimulation technology from Russia that uses biofeedback, which was, I, I still use it today, it's probably the most, or one of the most effective treatment devices in the world as far as I'm concerned. And um, I was trained by the Russians when they came to the UK in 1997. I was the only vet on the course. Um, and they hadn't really used them on animals at all so when i spoke to the to the doctors and the inventors who were there and said you know have these ever been used on animals and they said no and i said well is there any reason why not and they said can't think of one that's right well, that's good enough for me so um so i got one and then started trying them on various different species uh, one of the first things i treated was a pig that had been badly burnt um, because the outdoor units, they they obviously straw down those little huts you see in the field as you're driving around. Um, and then they move, when they change the, the pigs around, they they move the hut and burn the old bed and um, re-straw, obviously, the new, put the new bed down in the new place. So they'd done this with this sow, and she decided it was quite cold at night, and the old bed that had been burnt felt quite warm so she lay down on it and it basically burnt her really badly and you know the the farm were concerned obviously they treated her with antibiotics because the, the wound had got a bit infected and they had this sort of correlation between um when she was on the antibiotics she was okay and she ate and and seemed to be recovering um, but if they took her off the antibiotics, because obviously they didn't want to keep her on them forever, antimicrobial resistance, you know, it, farms are very aware of that. And um, so I then treated this this sow without, you know, without really knowing if it was going to work and went back a couple of days later. And as I walked down the track, they said, here comes Bones and the doctor from Star Trek. And I thought, well, this is either either good or good also or, or not so good i'm not sure and uh anyway so we went to see the pig and the skin had grown back and the hair was already starting to grow back and they'd stopped the antibiotics immediately the next day and from not wanting to eat they she was back eating again and uh made a full recovery so that was sort of my first experience of using it in, in a in an animal situation then i treated some horses that had some tendon injuries and, and again one of them had been retired and um we treated her and she came back into work and didn't have another day's lameness for five years having been previously retired so you know i, I then decided that actually this was a potentially a better way forward I, so i then sort of left general practice and first opinion practice and and sort of concentrated on just doing what I do which is the natural way and um I added my bioresonance in and and various other sort of modalities as as time has gone by and I've sort of kept up upgrading my my Russian micro uh, stimulation device it's called scanner um every time it has been upgraded so uh, and just sort of kept on taking on the cases that other vets find or struggle with, with the conventional methods, um, or where people want something that's perhaps not quite so invasive or a different way forward. And um, yeah, that's pretty much what I what I specialise in in doing these days. 
Um, and a lot of the technology, because I was trained how to use it on people, because a lot of the technology was developed for, for treating people, um, you know, it made sense to carry on with a human practitioner hat on to, to, to carry on treating people. And often with horses, you know, people have fallen off or had injuries. So, you know, you sort of end up treating treating rider and horse together at times. Um, and I think it's actually a better result if you do, because, you know, riding is a partnership between the rider and, and the horse. And, you know, the, the riders are very, um, very conscientious and very careful about looking after their horses. And they tend to neglect themselves a lot of the time. And actually, you know, if they aren't balanced and fit on top of their horse, then that will feed down into into the horse as well. So, you know, you've got this holistic approach, which actually encompasses more than just the horse. Um, and obviously some riders don't, don't need treatment or they do other things as well. But, you know, it, it can often happen that the injuries in in the rider can actually unbalance the horse and cause a very similar injury almost a parallel place in the horse's body uh underneath so and i think likewise chronic injuries in horses can potentially ricochet up as well so you know it's just sort of widening your perception to think well how do i get the best result possible um in in this situation and that's you know become my philosophy really which is you know the right person doing the right treatment at the right time in the right order. I love that, Roger. Um, and as you were talking about horses, I know because I live down in the West Country, so many horses, many riders, but also many dog owners and many cat owners like me. So number one, do your methods, can your methods work on dogs and cats and, and other animals, domestic animals? And the other thing is I can hear our audience saying, well, how, how do we get to see Roger? Um, but you you go around the country, don't you? You go and visit people as opposed to patients or animals coming to visit you. Yes, Debbie. I mean, I, I don't have a conventional practice as such. I, I don't do surgery. I'm actually trying to do everything if I can, impossible to, to avoid it. Um, and obviously, especially if you've got horse injuries, then you know it's better if if I go to them than they come to me you know they've got long traveling potentially in in horse boxes or trailers then you know I want the treatment that I do to not be shook up or you know uh, undone or, or contrad by anything that uh, you know long journey home so um, I tend to go around the country and if there's enough work in any area I'll, I'll go um, as a few people will bring their dogs to me as well and, and come for treatment themselves sometimes um so yeah it's but most of my work is sort of on the road really and uh it's good to see the countryside as well i mean it sort of racks up the miles in the car but uh that's um, i'm used to that by now well i know a lot of people that would be um will be incredibly grateful to vets like you because we're we're living in in a time now where as a, as humans you know, as humans, many, many are, are a little bit suspicious, um, a bit wary of going to doctors and into the NHS. Many are seeking alternative therapies. And it's just so wonderful that, A, 
you're pretty much, I think, the only vet um, so far in the UK that's really spoken up against mRNA and the, the whole COVID agenda. And you're a holistic vet too. And, you know, we are a nation of animal lovers. Uh, apparently, we've got the best animal welfare in the world. And um, I read an article about uh, the fact that I think it was George Eustace that said that we are a nation of animal lovers and we're the first country in the world, apparently, to pass animal welfare laws which recognise animals as sentient beings. And yet, when the COVID um, pandemic started, we actually um, we aired it on UK Column News that Lord Bethel at one point was talking about a cull on domestic cats. Uh, I mean, literally getting rid of every single cat because of COVID. And I've just recently read that in Australia, and to those of you that are watching in Australia um, and haven't heard this, it would appear that in some areas in Australia, they're thinking of putting cats into lockdown. Um, and we've heard a lot of news, and we'll come to the news perhaps on dogs in a minute. But Roger, when it comes to something like COVID, um, which we know hasn't been isolated. And um, in my opinion, it's a synthetic, inverted commas, virus anyway. What is the likelihood of cats and dogs and our domestic animals catching COVID from us? Um, because we talk a lot about zoonotic diseases, you know, how diseases are, are transmitted from animals to humans. And yet, here we are saying, well, maybe it's reverse zoonosis. And is it possible for animals to catch viruses? And I say that in inverted commas, from humans. Do we know of, of uh, any research that's been done with regards to this? I'm not aware of any particularly in terms of whether animals can catch, you know, COVID from, from people. Um, and, and also, I mean, the question of whether it can go the other way, I'm not sure has been properly um, researched either, because when you've got something that is now endemic in the population, as, as you know, SARS-CoV-2 is in, in all its different variants, then to be able to, even if an animal were to, you know, be if it, if it could be isolated from it, um, there's no proof that it came from you know, where it came from and whether people have got it from their animals as well. You know, we, we, everybody's meeting so many other people um, out and about that, that you couldn't prove that it came from the animals. So even if, it, even if animals were able to contract it, there's no proof that it could necessarily go in the opposite direction. The research just really hasn't been done. Um, I, th I think it's, you know, viruses are usually fairly species specific. They don't often um, cross um, cross species. Although, if you look at the World Health Organization, um, some of their decrees have, have sort of said that they think zoonosis is is the, the all disease in humans starts in animals, which is quite ridiculous. Um, you know, it's like, what are you setting yourself up to decree in future? And you know. People might think that the World Health Organization is only involved in human health, but there is also this one health idea. And 
if the World Health Organization, you know, if the pandemic treaty was signed by the UK and the international health regulations go through as intended from what we've seen so far, then it is theoretically possible that um, the Director General Tedros of the World Health Organization could unilaterally decide if he wanted to, to make a decree about animals um, on the basis that if they if they want to try and put the blame onto our pets or onto our animals, then who's going to stand up and say say no? Um, so you know there, that is a very real risk. Um, so yeah, it's it, it, it gets complicated and it gets political. And and that actually leads me to my next question because you know quite quite correctly you've said there is no research. So when Lord Bethel came out a couple of years ago to say that you know at one point they were considering a cat cull this would be completely this wouldn't be based on any kind of evidence any kind of science not that we can probably trust the science anymore but it wouldn't have been based on anything but it it brings me back to well a number of things because i'm 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 linking now animals with with humans all the time and for a very long time, we've been told in for safety, again, to keep your pets safe, it's best to microchip them. And I bought into it, Roger. You know, my cat, I was terrified, you know, what if what if my cat um, got lost or, or got injured and nobody knew um, who he belonged to? So for the, for the best intentions and the best will in the world, I microchipped, I've microchipped all my cats. I mean, I've only got one at the moment, but going back, they've been microchipped. And I know a lot of our audience are going to be saying, that's probably not a good idea anymore. And we wouldn't want to do that anymore. And certainly we're seeing the narrative being ramped up of, are we going to have to have microchips planted in our hands to swipe biometric data to get on the train, to get into the supermarket? What are your views and what's your advice going forward with regards to microchips in animals? Yeah, I think we've got to draw a bit of a separation between the human situation and the animal situation. Um, you know, microchips were brought out for, you know, for our animals because if they get lost or have an accident, they can't they can't explain what's going on you know there's a language barrier there so from that point of view microchips have got a very valid use in terms of helping to you know re uh, rejoin owners and and their pets in in that sort of emergency situation and i think that that will remain the human situation is is very is very different you know, we don't need microchips because we have to be able to be identified in an emergency situation. And we know unless we're totally unconscious, we've got the ability to tell people who we are and what's happened and what's gone wrong. And even if we're unconscious, we'll probably be in a situation where we've got a wallet or a phone or something that will tell people who we are. And obviously people put this, you know, in case of emergency number in their mobile phone for just that sort of scenario. So it's a very different situation. Um, on, on one level, I, I don't like putting foreign things into, into bodies. Um, in, in the case of, of microchipping, then I th- for, for, the, for the animals, you know, they are pretty inert as 
as they are. Um, and I, I think the, probably the benefits for microchipping animals outweigh any any potential negative. Um, but when it comes to, 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 to trying to use that as a precedent for, 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 for human situation, um, yeah, I'm not buying that either. As far as I'm concerned, it's the mark of the beast. Right. Well, I think you've made that quite plain. So thank you. Um, and in the age of vaccines, we know they're not vaccines. Um, so for anybody that's watching that's saying, why is Debbie keep calling these vaccines? I am really for our, our newer audience and for people that may be joining us for the first time. But for those of our audience that have been with us for a long time, we know that these aren't vaccines. However, animals have vaccines too. And whilst we've all become very suspicious and uh, we don't want to, we, we don't want any more vaccines as humans, what is your advice going forward with our domestic pets? Because we know from our previous interview that we did with you, uh, Roger, and I was very surprised to realise that mRNA wasn't being rolled out in animals like we thought it was, that there was only one that was being used in pigs. Um, so for anybody now that's sitting watching uh, whose animals are coming up for vaccination time, what's your advice to them? Yeah, vaccination is always um, is always a, a sort of big subject when it when it comes to, to to discussions. Really, certainly at the moment, as you quite rightly pointed out, there are no mRNA vaccinations inverted commas um, licensed or authorised for animal use in the UK at this point in time. So, people who are worried that their um, precious pooch or cat is going to be given an mRNA product. You know they they can rest easy that 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 isn't the case. It there is quite there is some evidence that shows that vaccination from say puppy or kitten will last considerably longer than um, people are usually encouraged to re to to give boosters. Um, there is certainly evidence in dogs to suggest that that vaccination can last at least seven years. And if not, if not life. Um, having said that, everybody's situation is going to be slightly different. Um, people who live in cities um, and where they walk their their dogs, particularly in areas where a lot of dogs will be walking, are obviously, if there is anything going round, are going to be far more liable to 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 encounter some sort of pathogen um which you know the vaccinations obviously obviously cover um and, and cats likewise you know you get you tend to get cats in much more close proximity in in highly built up areas for the for, for that reason too um having said that there is plenty as i said there's plenty of evidence to suggest vaccination lasts longer than um than we're encouraged to vaccine but on one hand, I've also got to stick up for the vets as well to a certain degree because vets are sort of, we're bound to follow the inclusion instructions within the vaccines by the, by, by the, the manufacturers. So if the manufacturers have licensed the vaccines to be repeated and, and with the booster to be given every three years, if vets don't do that, 
and then that the animal was subsequently um, found to then get immunocompromised and then get ill from one of those conditions for which they were supposed to be being vaccinated from, the vet would potentially be liable for not having given the booster at the right time in accordance with the um, the data sheet. And yet that cat or dog that was immunocompromised might well have become ill anyway, just because they're immunocompromised. So, and there's also this whole thing about teeter testing. So you can look for antibodies for some of the core vaccine um, diseases to see if immunity is present. Um, and obviously, we know from, we've all learned quite a lot about immunity recently over the last few years, I think. And as long as there are antibody levels there, then it also means that there are memory cells there. Although yet, very often, if, if an antibody level is found to be low, people will be encouraged to have a booster on the basis that their cover is low. And you know, people need to really understand that a TETA test is more of a measure of the current um, pathogen exposure and challenge that their animal is, is encountering rather than a, a measure of the immune status, because the body is very clever, it's very efficient. So if, if the body isn't encountering a bacteria or virus that would be being vaccinated against, then the body doesn't carry on making antibodies because there's no point. So the antibody levels will drop. And so the TETA test will, will show this drop. But the, the memory cells, which can gear up very, very quickly if they are challenged to produce more antibodies, are still there. But they TETA testing doesn't can't see the memory cells but we know from how the immune system functions that they're there so it, you know there is there is good reason good evidence to suggest that if an if a teta test produces any antibody level at all then there is cover there and likewise if you've got a situation where an antibody level is already high on the teta test then what's happening is that animal is being naturally challenged and naturally boosted in the environment through wherever they're walking or, or roaming or whatever they're doing. And so again, there is no need to boost uh, those, you know, those antibody levels because the, the environment's doing it already. And the other thing we've also got to bear in mind is that there are, as we know, lots of different variants and strains of the different viruses, and, and likewise there are different variants of, of the bacteria as well. And um, vaccinations aren't 100% effective in terms of cover. Um, there will be some strains which will be uh, covered and there will be other strains which may be circulating around or obviously to a certain degree you get selection for as a result that won't be covered by the vaccination. So it's, it's not a 100% guarantee. Um, and certainly if you've got a virus you know, like, like flu, um, and the equine flu is one of the horse vaccinations. Equine flu is one that, that that's given usually every couple of, um, every, every year. Um, and there's a vaccine board that that sits and chooses which circulate which which strains are circulating, and then different manufacturers will have different strains in in their equine flu vaccination. Um, so you know that 
that is still a guesswork in terms of what's circulating around. And there was a situation in the late twenty. Uh, late teens where um you know vaccines were actually didn't have any of the currently circulating strain in them so um you know the it but there will probably be some degree of of, cro- of crossover protection but it, it it's always in an emotive situation and and vets are in in some ways cause in the middle because science says we don't need to vaccinate every year certainly we so we don't need to necessarily do it every three years but if the product says on the data sheet that this must be boosted every three years if vets don't do that then they become potentially liable for that situation so i can i can understand you know we've become more litigious as a society as a society so I can understand both sides of of that coin, um, and people in their own situation really need to consider their danger level, if you like, to what's the likelihood of my dog or cat um, experiencing these uh, or being challenged by by these viruses in the real world. And on the whole, if you live in the countryside, you're far less likely to be challenged. If you live in the city, you're probably more likely to be challenged, and that's where the outbreaks of, of um, FIV and things like that tend to happen. So, um, you know, it, it's it's not a one one hat fits all situation. You know, people need to consider what their what their what their personal situation is, where where they walk their animals, or how much they roam, and um, you know, where do they draw the line in their sand? in terms of their their risk analysis as well um and also you know dog owners if if people have um dogs which uh, you know have dog walkers or they have to go to doggy daycare or or um or go to kennels for going on holiday or something like that very often um, they are required for their vaccinations to be up to date in terms of by the data sheet. Um, and again, the kennels are in a no-win situation as well because their license is provided by the local authority and the local authorities haven't got up to date with the science. So it, it's not quite as straightforward as it might first appear. There are sort of medical and scientific reasons that say vaccination doesn't have to be given so frequently, but there are sort of political and legislative um, situations that actually suggest that that they they will require them more frequently. Um, so, as I say, it, it's not as straightforward as it might first seem. No, it really isn't. And as, as you're saying that, I completely identify... Um when I had uh, my previous cats who I've now lost uh, through old age, uh, they couldn't go to the cattery when we moved without being fully vaccinated. And you had to actually show the certificate of vaccination as well. Um, So I think you're absolutely right. And and for people watching, it it is going to be on your own risk benefits. Um, You need to do, you need to do your own um, risk benefits. What's it called? Um, it's not a survey, is it? 
analysis. That's that's it. Thank you very much. A risk analysis. You need to do your own risk analysis. But, you know, as you were talking there, Roger, and I don't want to keep coming back to COVID, and I promise I won't, because I know that when we were speaking last time, I was watching the chat box as the interview was going out, and a lot of people were talking about diet. So I want to I want to come to that in a minute. But just before I do, um, there seems to be a lot of evidence, especially through the Pfizer papers, the Pfizer dump, um, that Professor Chris Flowers and the War Room and Dr. Naomi Wolf are, are analysing at the moment um, of shedding. So shedding of spike proteins from vaccinated people, especially ones that have just been recently boosted, um, onto unvaccinated people. I suspect I probably know the answer to this question, but I want to ask you anyway, so we've got it on the record. Is there or do you know of any research that would suggest that the spike protein shedding that we seem to be seeing that's affecting humans, could that be affecting our dogs and our cats? Because we've certainly seen some reports of animals reacting in a slightly different way or behaving slightly differently. Now, whether this is to do with being with vaccinated owners and shedding, I don't know. I just wondered if you'd heard anything um, through the veterinary circles about this. No, to be honest, Debbie, I haven't really, I haven't read anything that I could really sort of want to hang my hat on. I mean, it, it, the whole thing is so difficult to um, to really know where the truthful situation is because, as we know from very early on. You know, a lot of these detections are being done by PCR test. And if that PCR test is being overcycled like we know it was, then, you know, as Gary Mullis said, you know, the inventor of the PCR, if you, if you cycle it high enough, you can find anything anywhere. And so I do wonder what detection process has been used, even for the cases which are anecdotal, which have been reported. You know, how much was the PCR um, test actually cycled to, to make this detection? Was it actually a clinically significant level if you if you had that data to, to, to then interpret it? And I suspect probably it isn't. Um, and this is really where we, you know, I'd really sort of tell, you know, advise people sort of if, if, if PCR tests are being done, you've got to really look at the cycling levels being done. I don't know if, if those have been updated uh, in terms of what they've been instructed to do by um, the NHS uh, going forward, but obviously you can manipulate the cycling of the PCR test to artificially um, make it appear whether something is on the rise or on the decrease. So it, I think just the interpretation is is very risky. Uh, I don't think the research has really been done to that degree to really understand the risks to um, to our animals, either from the virus or, as you say, from the spike protein. Um, I suspect probably the, the level of shedding from the spike protein you know, is it is it high enough to make a difference in our pets? I I don't know. I haven't personally been asked to you know to to, to address that situation in any of the animals I've been asked to treat. Um, 
maybe the spike protein receptors in animals are slightly different to humans and it's sufficient that the spike protein doesn't get in or the virus doesn't get in there so it, it it's just an, a big unknown i think is 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 the end of the day debbie i'm you know, I, w- I wouldn't want to say categorically either way because I think there are so many uncertainties in terms of what has gone on in in detection that even even if a paper came out without knowing how the PCR test was done, I, I wouldn't know how to interpret it anyway. To be honest, I think um, I think you've just summed it up again, Roger. Because like everything else with this whole. Uh, pandemic we don't have any research we we literally don't have any research um so jumping on a little bit and changing topic a little bit but we're living in an era where the food chain is we've got disruptions in our human food chain i'm already seeing um some shortages of vegetables fresh vegetables and fresh fruit in our supermarkets and um i'm i'm thinking this it could be a problem with disruption. I'm stocking up on cat food, and I'm sure other people are stocking up on dog food. But when we were talking last time about mRNA, there was a lot of chat in the chat box about diets. And going forward, when we run out, if we run out of your cat's favorite food or your dog's favorite dried food or whatever, number one, should animals be fed on a meat diet, a vegetarian diet? And number two, if we do have shortages of pet food, what should we be feeding our pets on? I'm a great advocate for species appropriate diet, whatever the species. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, both cats and dogs are carnivores. Um, cats are called obligate carnivores. So they have to have meat in their diet and dogs are called facultative carnivores which means that they they are predominantly carnivorous but they can eat other um other ingredients too however having said that just because a dog is facultative carnivore doesn't mean that meat and primarily meat is the main thing that keeps them healthy you know nature has evolved um through the wild through you know far far longer than we've been having them as domesticated animals and this is an an advantage from an evolutionary point of view if in times of hardship you know during those many ice ages that 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 have happened at various different times you know if animals weren't easy to find then if if a wolf or a dog could survive on something else to get it through the winter to back get back to the point where hunting became more prolific again, then obviously that's better than starving to death. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the ability to survive is the ability to be the healthiest you possibly can. So my aim is always to feed the optimum diet and as far as I'm concerned for both dogs and cats, that is carnivore diet. And by that, I mean raw meat and bone and meat, meaty bones. So I'm, there are lots of, of, of raw diets out there. There's something like 90 different um, raw, raw food manufacturers these days. And 
I do, I feed my own dog, I treat it, I, I do it DIY, and it's actually a lot more simple than it is often made out to be. Um, so, and, and unfortunately, you know, when we go through vet school, a lot of the nutrition classes are taught by uh, or financed by the pet food companies. So they will provide free pet food to the referral centres, to the animal hospitals where we do our clinical training. They will sponsor the, um, the lectures. And I don't know what the current contractual situation is between the vet schools and, um, and pet food manufacturers. But certainly I've seen contracts in the past where the pet food company has the veto on what students are taught in terms of nutrition. Um, so a lot of, uh, you know, vets are taught some nutrition, but it's, it's very basic. Um, and it is more about understanding a packet than it is about understanding, you know, how the diet should be properly, um, should be properly fed. Um, and I always say to people, if in doubt, you know, what did you see on David Attenborough last night? You know? If you don't see it in the wild, we don't have to do it for them. So, you know, dogs and cats don't attack wheat fields. They don't dig vegetables. They, you know, they don't climb fruit trees and, 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 and eat lots of fruit. They might scavenge it sometimes when it's on the, if it's fallen on the ground and they're hungry, they might, I'm sure they enjoy a sugar hit the same as we do. Um, but primarily their diet is to hunt and kill and scavenge carcasses and and animals obviously um and part of that whole process of of eating isn't just what we get from a chemical point of view there's the physicality of the diet as well so you know they will crunch bones and tear off meat and that process in itself helps to keep the teeth clean and healthy and the gums clean and healthy so they don't get tartar build up on the teeth the way we see in, in, in many domesticated um, pets where they're fed kibbles, which are primarily vegetable-based because they're cheap. Um, some of them only have a minuscule amount of, of, of animal content in them. And, um, you know, we've got cancer now in dogs now approaching, I think the figure is one in four, and it's predicting to go down to one in two. Um, I mean, if you look at what the human point of view from from cancer is you know a lot of it's put down to stress and and diet and pollutants and all the rest of it but you know we tend to look after our animals with with great deal of care they 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 want for nothing their stress levels are are very low um and so we have to assume that actually the diet is probably the biggest factor for our pets um, in terms of what is causing chronic disease, because you know, we say if you put petrol into a diesel car, don't be surprised if it doesn't run very well. So if you put, you know, plant predominantly plant-based um, diets into carnivores, don't be surprised if they don't function very well. And one of the ways that the body indicates that it's not functioning very well is chronic inflammation, which is the background for cancers, for autoimmune disease. It's the reason why so many dogs are itchy and have allergies because, again, the skin isn't just a protective barrier between the insides and the outsides. It is the biggest organ of the body and it is an organ of excretion. So toxins 
are pushed out through it if they if the kidneys and the liver are doing their job and they're being a bit overloaded with all the toxins going in then the skin comes comes into play and that's what creates all the inflammation in the skin which you then get the allergies and the itchy and all the rest of it so you know there are big ramifications for diet and there have been um i've seen fairly recently i think there was um in australia one of the um one of the organizations over there basically said that they swapped all their dogs from kibble fed onto raw and the difference in health was phenomenal um and you know the vet bills went down and they didn't need to see them for half as many things and you know i think that that is the um predominant experience of people who feed raw properly and i say properly because there's lots of people feeding raw with the best intention not doing it properly um and actually if you sort of widen it one of the big ways that you know that raw feeding is very good for our pet cats and dogs is to sort of lower the tone a little bit the volume of poo coming out the back end goes down to about a third of what it was previously and this is predominantly the reason why we have problems in our parks because dogs that are being fed, that are being fed kibble and walked in the parks what's coming out is two thirds um insoluble undigestible fiber from 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 the kibbles and the plant-based food so of course they don't wash away they don't disappear whereas i'm sure if you think back to when you were a kid if you saw you know dog dog poo in the in the street it went white in the sun and it crumbled to dust and it disappeared so the reason why we've got all this public health issue in our parks is because the, we're feeding the wrong inappropriate diet you know the the earth didn't well, uh, biology didn't evolve for for feces to hang around in the environment um and yet that's exactly what's what's happening so you know a much bigger volume as well so you know the there's all sorts of indicators in many different aspects of life that tell us that um you know we primarily feed or the vast majority of people with the best intention and the vets are doing it with the best intention as well you know that's how they've been taught and they you know you go to university to learn but that's what they've been taught so they they are saying what they believe and what they're taught um and and so ultimately it doesn't change the fact that um you know that these these kibble diets are causing disease and um you know there there have been a number of different vets throughout the years who who've been trying to highlight the problem um i'm friends with 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 uh, tom lonsdale who's written a couple of books on the subject and he used to stand for election for the royal college elections every year and i was one of his um nominee nominees nominators dominators and um so you know he he always whatever question he was ever asked in sort of hustings or online in regards to his opinion on anything he always brought it back to the diet because he didn't want anybody to ever claim that people voted for him based on something other than his his opinion over raw feeding and so he was basically saying that as a profession we we should be feeding correctly and not advocating feeding McDonald's every every meal and um you know he used to get regularly 3 400 vets would vote for him and and yet you know as a profession 
you know, the Royal College and, and the BVA refused to, you know, to, to support any research into, into, into proving that situation, although in recent years there is a lot more research coming through, um, which is vindicating what Tom and I have been saying for, for many years. So, and, and others, you know, there's, there's, there's obviously a, you know, a few hundred vets out there who, who are very much supportive of, of raw feeding. Um, there is a raw feeding veterinary society who are trying to gather all the scientific evidence and present it to the professions around the world to try and, you know, improve um, the perception of, of diet. Um, in terms of, you know, if, if food shortages come along, you know, I still think species-appropriate diet is a species-appropriate diet. Um, and we just need to try and find other ways. Um, you know, if you get fresh roadkill, sounds horrible, but, you know, it's dogs, dogs and cats were scavengers. And, you know, they, they used to eat whatever was, was fresh. Um, and I also think it's probably one of the reasons why cats have decimated songbird population so much in the UK too, because they don't really want the kibble that's in their nature to hunt and eat and and they know what's good for them um i think there's a book written somewhere and it's called uh, cats would eat mice and again it's you know a book that went into the advocating feeding raw to cats and um and, and, and unfortunately the commercial pet foods put taste enhancers into the kibbles and into the into the various different foods um to encourage palatability and to encourage the animals to eat it, so eight out of cat, eight out of ten cat owners don't know their cats are addicts, and um, unfortunately, no cats aren't that fussy. You look at a leopard in the wild; it doesn't decide. Oh, I only eat zebra. I'm not going to eat that wildebeest, which just happens to be at my feet and is ready to eat. You know, they eat everything. They're not fussy eaters in the wild. They are. They have been made to be fussy eaters by their addictions and that will probably be quite controversial um but that's the truth of the situation did, roger did you say raw feeding now i i'm i'm going to place i'm going to play stupid here because of course our viewers and our listeners are all going to know what raw meat is however when it comes to our animals i just want to ask you <laughs> as a vet what you would give your dog because i and i know that dogs and cats are are all very very unique but for an average dog an average cat so let's take a dog first should we be using i mean can we go to the supermarket and buy some mints not that probably anybody would want to go to and buy supermarket mints but is it better to go to the butcher can we use frozen food what ki kind of meat? I mean, it's a, a minefield. It's like a raw food diet. Great. But specifically in your, in your expert opinion, what would you give an average dog, for example? Yeah, it's, um, as you say, they are all individuals, but I always try and encourage people to, to aim for the gold standard. And if they then fall a bit short, um, that's fine. And some, some, individual animals will be able to eat the gold standard and, and some will struggle. And there's, there's reasons I can talk about as to why that is as well. Um, so like for my dog, he's a little patterdale. 
and um, he has raw chicken drumsticks and occasionally he has some breast of lamb and occasionally I give him meat as uh, mince as well. So on a, r- a very rough scale rule of thumb, you're feeding about 20% of the body weight over a whole week. Um, and that's then you're feeding to eye. So if your dog is or cat is too overweight, then you feed less. If it's underweight, you feed more. And obviously, if they're working dogs or, or something where they're, you know, they're going out and doing a lot of activity, then you have to feed them more on those days. Um, and the other important thing about the diet is it's not just about chemical composition. It's the whole physical nature of the diet as well. It, it plays a function in their health. So I'm not a fan of pre-ground raw feeding, and there's a lot of products out there that do that. Um, the reason being, one of the scare stories that, that vets will push around is that bacterial contamination. So, but if you think about it, if there's bacterial contamination in, you know, for, for, on a chicken drumstick, for example, if there was some some bacterial contamination on it, it would be on the outside. So as they crunch up the bones and the meat and they swallow it all together, then all the contamination that's on the outside hits the stomach acid when it's at its strongest first. So that's what destroys all the bacteria. If everything is pre-ground, then if there is any contamination on the original lump of meat and bone, then as it's ground up and mixed together all the contamination gets mixed throughout that food as well so by the time the some of the bacteria are encountered by um, the stomach acid the stomach acid has already been a little bit neutralized by digesting the food on the way Um, so you know so from from a health point of view it's better obviously that bacterial contamination is killed in the stomach and doesn't pass on down Um, and that contamination can happen in in any food it's not unique to raw feeding which is what the pro kibble people will often say um there has been contamination found in in kibble foods as well so it's not a unique situation um the other aspect of feeding in big lumps is that um you know part of the function of the teeth is to is to crack up those raw bones and again they've got to be raw cooked bones splinter raw bones don't and that's where it's really important to make that distinction so that's why raw feeding is is so good so it'll keep the teeth and the gums clean and healthy by crunching up those bones and that's their job um so there is a filica there is a physical aspect to the diet as much as there is a chemical aspect to the diet um, and that, unfortunately, is very much overlooked by a lot of the commercial raw feeding um, diets which are put out there, which are sort of ground up. Um, and so, you know, it's important to get, you know, we're trying to replicate what nature does. Um, so, you know, we talk about about uh, dogs and cats being carnivores. It's perhaps more accurate to say they're carcassivores because they eat carcasses. So, that's what we've got to we've got to think about what we're trying to replicate so there's an element of of meat and bone and if the meat is on the bone 
then the meat is protecting the esophagus, which is the, the bit from your, your mouth down to your stomach. Um, it, it protects that as, as everything goes down. And then once everything gets into the stomach, the acid dissolves it. And then, you know, the bone and everything and, uh, and it all passes through nicely. So it's important uh, to, to, to get that right um, in terms of the physical aspect of it. And then, of course, if the dogs uh, are and the cats are chewing a little bit more and having to crunch up their diet a little bit more, it, it's more satisfying to them. You know, they, they have to work a little bit maybe pulling some meat off a bone or or crunching and and working at it and that works their jaws it gets a certain degree of endorphins released as well which obviously has sort of some sort of calming effect we know endorphins do that so you know there are potentially you know sort of behavioral potential effects to, to feeding the, the diet in the right in the right function in the right way and then it's a question really of, of affordability you know Ideally, it'd be nice if we could all afford to feed our, our pet carnivores or carcassivores organic meat that's that's you know grown up happy on on, on a regenerative farm or organically and all the rest of it. But the reality is, not everybody can afford to do that, and um, so we've got to we've got to work within what people can afford. And actually, the biggest benefit to the raw feeding is it's, there's two elements to it one is moving away from the commercial mcdonald's kibble um and the other is obviously what you're moving on to and i would probably say that in my opinion it is more important what you're moving away from so much than what you're moving on to so if people can't afford to feed organic and that all you know all they can afford to do is go down to the supermarket and buy the cheapest versions of of the raw meat and bone then that is still going to be a lot better than um the, than the option of feeding the commercial kibbles so you know it, that's it we sort of got to sort of work out where the benefits are mostly coming from and actually moving away from processed food which we know from human you know hu human stuff uh, talking about the science of human feeding we know that that processing food is not healthy on the whole, um, so that's what we're trying to we're trying to move away from that processed food. Um, yeah, so that's 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 sort of the, the sort of nuts and bolts of it, really. So it, it really is give a dog a bone. I mean, you know, that's that's what we're coming down to. And, I, and I'm I'm just sitting here thinking that a lot of people watching this are going to be thinking, right? Okay, well, we want to move our dogs onto this. But of course, uh, I mean, my family's have, we've had dogs all, all my life and dogs get fussy and uh, some dogs enjoy their treats. And I can imagine a lot of people watching this will be saying, well, is it going to be difficult moving my animal from uh, what I've been feeding them for the last goodness knows how many years to a raw diet? Will they see changes I mean, will they see behavioural changes as they move diet? Will they see physical changes as they move diet? What what sort of things are people likely to see if they decide, actually, do you know what? I'm going to throw away the kibble. I'm not going to use the produced pet foods anymore. And I'm going to do what Roger suggests. Yeah, I mean, they, they will see benefits fairly quickly. Dogs on the whole are more 
easily swapped over. Um, the sort of two schools of thought amongst the raw feeding vets um, in that some people will try and swap them over more gradually, the dogs more gradually, and others will go, you know, we, we can just swap swap over in one big go. And again, as I say, you know, dogs are all individuals. So um, some dogs will just swap. You can just literally throw them, um, you know, a drumstick or or, or chicken leg or something, and uh, and they'll just crunch it up. I think Christmas has arrived every day, and they'll be overly happy. Um, so you and and the big changes, of course, you'll see in the digestion. That the the raw diet is so much more digestible. Um, sort of going going on to sort of the other end of 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 the feeding, what comes out. So typically, the volume coming out from 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 the backside when they when they go to the toilet will be about a third of what they previously used to produce so you could argue that um two-thirds of a bag of kibble is mostly coming outside the yeah coming out the back end there's only the bioavailability of, of the plant material is very much less than what they'll pick up from the raw meat and bones um the other aspect of, of defecating is it actually serves a function in that if you've had dogs, you know that they've got anal glands at the back and sometimes they can get get bunged up and then the vet has got to express them and it's not very pleasant for anybody involved or the dog. Um, so, But part of the function in the wild of defecating is that when they go to the toilet, they strain. And because the poo is that much harder, it actually expresses the anal glands a little bit when they poo. So it's part of their territory marking behavior. And if they aren't producing sufficiently hard feces, then that function isn't happening. And of course, then things build up and then they become impacted and they can get infected and all the rest of it. So the, uh, you know, they do need to be doing a certain amount of straining, but obviously not too much when, when they, when they, when they're defecating. So, the other rule of thumb when you're feeding is, you know, watch them when they go to the toilet and see how much they're straining. And if they're straining too much, you're feeding too much bone um, and maybe not enough organ meat. Because you need a little bit of organ meat in there as well, a little bit of liver, but it can it can make them a little bit loose. So you want to sort of match that to if you're feeding something that's perhaps got a little bit more bone in it. So you balance what comes out the back end. Um and obviously, if they're not straining enough, then they're not going to fulfil that function of of, of, hem, of helping to, to to express the anal glands. So you need to increase the bone content. So that's really the, the rules of, of thumb of, of feeding is, you know, if they're too fat, feed less, too thin, feed more, straining too much, feed less bone, add a bit more organ meat in. If they're not straining enough, add more bone in and or maybe a little bit less organ meat. And if you follow those those rules then you'll pretty much get it right you know the whole concept of a balanced diet is something that the pet food companies really have um they sort of sort of invented because obviously we do need certain nutrients across the board <clears throat> but you know when they're wanting owners to satisfy the dog's complete nutritional requirements from a bag and they only want it to be their bag then they've got to try and make sure that everything is balanced within that meal as to what they think a dog needs. But 
the fact that you've got different bags which will have different contents mean that even that's not an exact science. So, but if I said to you, Debbie, how much calcium did you have in your breakfast this morning? You wouldn't be able to tell me. Um, so, uh, and we don't know all of our, our, you know, our balanced diet. We don't make sure that every single meal that we have is exactly the proportions because we don't know them and they're going to be different for individuals as well. So the fact that the diet contains everything over a couple of weeks, the body will will take what it needs and as it as it needs it in the proportions that it needs it, and um, and so so to a certain degree, if you're feeding the sort of food which nature intended them to eat, which is raw meat and bone, then the requirements, the nutrient requirements, will be approximately right for all the calorific intake that they need. So that's how you know that they're getting. You know the right diet because they're eating the right food. You've only got to worry about balancing everything else when you're feeding feeding them a fundamentally incorrect diet. Um, so it, you know nature has already worked it out, um, and this idea that you know we we can do it better than nature is you know is just r- ridiculous. I'm a cat owner, so we've been talking a lot about dogs. Are you saying? because I'm I'm cringing, I have to say it, the thought of it, but are you saying that feeding my cat dead mice would be better than the, well, I, I'm using wet food and dry food, so kibble food in, in essential. Um, would you say that I've got to give my cat mice and and things with bones or or should i go fishing um and can i use could i use tinned fish perhaps or do i need to use fresh fish what's the deal with cats yeah debbie cats are a little bit more tricky because partly because i think they had to use more taste enhancers with the cat foods to get them to to eat them the the cats do tend to be they you know got the idea of their being more fussy and I, I don't actually believe that i think if you look at cats in the wild they're not that fussy at all um they eat what's available and they're happy to do so so cats can be very much more difficult to swap over onto a raw diet and you know sometimes you do then have to sort of wean them off uh what they're addicted to and replace it with the raw feed and do it more you know more gently um so but again you know the sort of food that they're they're eating chicken would be would be a good one for them and maybe because they're a bit smaller um take the tip of the wings off and feed them chicken wings and let them crunch it up but you know cats will catch birds um so you've also to a certain degree think what what would these you know animals be hunting and catching in the wild if they if they were roaming free so as you say you know mice would be the sort of right sort sort of size and, and birds would be the right sort of size you wouldn't get a domestic cat hunting down wildebeest um you know the, the, the big cats the leopards and, and whatever do and the tight lions and tigers do but obviously our our domestic moggies are a fraction of that size um so we've got to match what their jaws are capable of of coping with um in terms of what we're going to feed them so and then again look at the sort of density of the bones so large weight bearing bones are going to be too hard they're not going to they're not going to be able to crunch through them 
for certainly, you know, even even for sort of dogs with knuckle bones, that's where they risk breaking teeth by trying to crunch through something that's too hard. So, you know, try and keep to non-weight bearing bones or if you're feeding something where you're going to be weight bearing bones, it will have to be of a size like a rabbit, for example, that, that they would all be able to munch and, and crunch and, and catch in the wild if that's what they were doing. Um, and obviously everybody, you know, most people have got their domestic cats that they have in their home. But if you think about all the farm cats, which which are kept and just basically roam, live outside, and they're there to catch the rats and mice and, and whatever else, they will probably very rarely eat the cat food. They will look after themselves and most of them live to ripe old ages very healthily. Um, and that's the other aspect of the diet is, you know, Food should be your medicine and medicine should be your food. And it's as true for our animals as, as it is for us. So, you know, if they're on the right diet, on the whole, they're very much more healthy and they need very much less intervention. Thank you, Roger, for that. Um, that gives me plenty of, pardon the pun, food for thought. Um, one quick question, because a lot of people ask us all of these preparations for fleas, for ticks, etc., what would your remedy be if people don't want to go down the chemical route for a flea prevention or tick treatment, for example? Yeah, they're they're tricky ones because you know we've sort of we changed the environment where, where the pets are living as well, so we've made it very much more hospitable for for the fleas, especially, you know, they like to live in the carpets under the skirting boards and live in the home. And they tend to just hop on for, for, for a meal and then hop off again. Um, so it is more difficult to, you know, to, to, to cope with from that perspective. I mean, there's, there are various essential oils, um, but obviously you've got to be careful with those um, because they, they can be too strong for, for pets as well. And there can be some various herbs which you can try and use to, to help with um, with fleas and, and deworming and, and things like that. Um, and occasionally, you know, people might have to do what they don't want to do. If, you know, if, if they do happen to unfortunately get an outbreak of something, then, you know, you've just got to deal with it. And the same with going back to the food slightly, you know, if someone is getting their, they've swapped their dog over to the, or the cat over to their raw diet and, and they're happy with doing it at home and that their own and the rest of it but you know if if that dog has then got to go and stay with their parents or grandparents or or somebody a friend while they're on holiday who can't necessarily cope with feeding that in the same way then for for sure you know feeding some of the commercial um feeds for a very you know for a short period of time while someone is away is is certainly better than going back onto a kibble so, you know, we do what we can the best we can for the majority of the time. And if we get that right, you know, we don't need to beat ourselves up if we've got to try do something different in circ with circumstances dictate. You know, what we do for the majority of the time, it will determine the majority of their health. And, uh, you know, say said before you know financial ability also comes into it and um you know i don't want people feeling feeling bad that they can't afford to do the gold standard with organic and all the rest of it you know you're still doing the best by your pets by doing what you can afford to do and feeding the raw and doing you know doing what you can in whatever different way 
Oh, you know what? It's quite clear that we could talk forever on dogs, cats, domestic animals, but I am really keeping my eye on the clock. But what I want to, to, to say to our viewers is we're going to be delighted to um, be having Roger back again to talk about farm animals because we it's a huge subject, farming and farm animals. So I promise you we will come back to that. So before I hand to you for the final word, Roger, my final question to you is... What do you think the future holds for domestic pet pets, dogs, cats, hamsters, animals to keep you company, animals to give you love, for you to give animals love? With the 15-minute cities around the corner springing up right in front of us, what do you believe the future of our domestic pets is? It's a very good question and it's difficult to know absolutely. You know, if if this whole, you know, you'll own nothing and be happy scenario is what they try and push us into. And as you say, into a 15 minute city, I think there was um there was a series on telly recently, I didn't watch it, but it was based on to uh, a, a man and a woman who shared effectively a flat. One worked at night and the other worked during the day and they, they basically shared the, the accommodation um, at, at different, so, you know, between night and day, and they never, you know, ships passing in the night, they never actually met, and eventually they did, I think. But that's if that's the sort of scenario where they're wanting us to to share accommodation like that and, and you know, be restricted in, in cities, then there have been some indications that they're not keen on, on people having pets, um, Obviously, they would have. They still have to be fed. They're wanting to, um, to you know, to, to, to restrict our, our meat consumption for people down to sixteen kilos a year, which is less than was rationed during the Second World War. So you can imagine there's there's going to be a huge attack on on animal farming and meat production, and they want to push us into frankenmeat on that basis. So, you know, again, I wouldn't be pushing that. I wouldn't want to feed my dog that, let alone have it myself. Um, so, so you can see that there are intentions potentially for what they want to push the situation in the future with regard to pet ownership and the rest of it. Um, I, they're obviously not going to do it straight away. They're going to find some sort of excuse, a bit like the One World Health Organization. Um, you know, blame blame it on something on on a zoonosis or, or some other hygiene or whatever else situation. Um, I don't think it's going to happen straight away. I think there would be an outrage, and uh, if they did. But obviously, as you, uh, you mentioned before, there's you know there was talk about having a, a cat cull only a couple of years ago, um, and people forget there was actually a pet cull after the se- or, you know during the Second World War. So um, it's not without its precedent, um, but you know we've we've just got to be aware of potentialities and. Just say no. You know, we we will not comply to those sorts of of of, of dictats that are based on you know their concept of what they think their utopia for us will be. You know, we are sovereign individuals ourselves, and you know we've got to make up our own minds, and we've got to stand up for what we want. Um, and now is the time to stand up because once they start pushing things like 
pet restriction on us in future, if that's what they intend, and there's reason to believe they might, then, you know, it's too late to stand up for our freedoms at that point. That's the point where we've already given up so many of our own that it will be almost impossible to stand up. So, you know, now is the time to, to be aware of what could potentially be coming down the track. And an easy life now is certainly not going to be an easy life in the future. You know, we do need to, to you know, motivate ourselves and, and you know, make sure, make it plain that this is not acceptable. You're absolutely right. And I thank you for that. And I completely agree. We all have to say no. And now is the time to say no. We've had three years and people are waking up everywhere. And I I cannot reinforce it enough. Now is the time. Now is the time to say no. And of course, what you've just said, Roger, is if that puts into question the future of domestic animals in our lives, that also poses a question for our local vets, our vets that have been looking after our animals for 20, 30 years, our our vets that are up the the road, around the corner, not the big conglomerations. I'm sure they'll survive for the elite who, who are able to have animals. But for the rest of us, that just doesn't put our, our wonderful pets in danger. It puts your, your career in danger too but that's a whole new story but I cannot thank you enough because it's so helpful to speak to a vet because the animal kingdom it's it's part of our humanity it's part of creation we we go together animals and humans go together so to have you be able to talk to us about all sorts of different animals and alternative ways and holistic ways of looking after animals is simply incredible and I can't thank you enough. Um, But as always, Roger, you know I'm going to throw to you for the last word, but I'm just going to reassure that our viewers and listeners that all the details of how to get in touch with Roger will be in the article beneath this interview and our next interview will be on farming and farm animals so we have that to look forward to and by the way if any any of our members um, we know that there's um, a thread on the forum for Roger if you've got questions please do ask us the questions and we can we can pass them straight on to Roger So with that, Roger, thank you so much for your time. We'll see you again very soon, but it's over to you for your last word. Thanks, Debbie. I mean, as you quite rightly say, I think it was Gandhi who said you can tell the health of the nation by how they treat their animals in terms of society and humanity. Um, But I I just want to say that although I've been talking about sort of different ways of of feeding our our, our pets and and, and managing them in a sort of more holistic and and natural way. You know, I don't want people who are watching to get angry at their regular vets. They're, you know, we, we are humans too. We all do what we do with the best intention and with the knowledge that we have at the time. And whilst many of the vets won't agree with what I'm saying, they they are no different in terms of their motivation, in terms of how they work. And the problem is with the system. The problem is, how, with, is with how the universities are influenced by the pet food companies, by pharma, and, and how the research is skewed from that way. It's no different in, in, in anything else. Um, you know, we... 
moving forward, we need to find a new way of separating the researchers from the universities and from the, from the scientists so that the, the research carried out and published is actually the truth. Um, there is no pressure on whoever's doing it to produce the result that they are being paid to produce because if they don't produce it, they will um, not get the next research um, grant. And if they don't get that research grant, then the laboratory or that aspect of, of their job will close So and jobs are on the line. So there are pressures on scientists for the, you know, and the system is wrong. And what it's producing is therefore not what it should be. Um, you know, there are, you know, normal vets, we're all busy people. Uh, and it's very difficult to perhaps go into some of the things that I've gone into. And a lot of the time I've, I've stumbled across them or they've stumbled into me. Um, so I, I'm in a fairly unique position from, from that point of view. So, you know, please don't get angry at your local vets because they aren't doing what I say. You know, I'm not, I'm not omniscient and on, uh, t- at all either. I don't, I don't know everything there is to know. and We all make mistakes. So um, I would just say, you know, be kind to your vets. They're doing the best that they can, but you know, do your own research as well and, uh, you know, make your own decisions.